Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are returning to a study we began a couple weeks ago in the book of Ruth. And we're picking up where we left off last time. This morning we'll be in Ruth 1, 6 through 22, which can be found starting on page 222 if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles. Now, as you're turning there, let me orient us very briefly to where we are in the book of Ruth. Um, Now, you may remember that last time we were in the book, we studied the prologue of the book. That is the first five verses of the book of Ruth. And we heard in that prologue all about the threefold crisis that Israel found herself in and that this family found itself in when the book opens. We talked about how there was a crisis in Israel. This was during the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in his or her, not his or her own eyes. Not a great time. There was a crisis in this small Israelite family when they decided to live in Moab for 10 years, a place away from the land of promise, and they suffered for that. <clears throat> Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Um, her two sons, Malhan and Chilion, died. And then there was a future crisis where Naomi and had no no children left and her her daughters-in-law had no husbands and no offspring either and the opening of ruth left us with the question of whether god could restore a family and a nation after suffering such a tragedy well in today's passage we see a new beginning as it were as god begins to orchestrate events bringing together things that were left empty and now filling things that were left empty and decimated. And so with that context in mind, let's turn our hearts and attention now to Ruth chapter one, verses six through 22. Um, <clears throat> as always, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version of the ESV. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for is it exceedingly bitter for me for your sake? that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. 
And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. <clears throat> and the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Earlier this summer, there was some incredibly good news that came out of an otherwise tragic situation. Uh, you may have heard the story that in early June, uh, just before our team from Harvest went to Columbia, that four children who had gone missing in the jungles of Columbia were discovered. Uh, they were malnourished, beaten up, but alive after spending 40 days alone in the dense, unforgiving jungle all by themselves. Now, the tragedy uh, that led to their 40-day quest for survival happened at the beginning of May when they were forced to flee their village because of armed drug traffickers. And so they hopped on a small aircraft that was supposed to carry them, their mother, and two other adults to a safer location. Uh, but during the flight, the aircraft had an engine failure. It crashed in the jungle, and it tragically killed their mother and the other adults who were with them. But these four children, ages 13, 9, 4, and 1, not only survived the crash, but also survived off the jungle and a bag of flour that they recovered from the aircraft until they were eventually rescued after an extensive search 40 days later. Now, apparently, in the reports that circulated afterwards, the oldest child, she, she had been trained by her family in how to live off the land, and she was able to put some of those survival skills to use in navigating the jungle. But that didn't make that their ordeal any less difficult, because in addition to the natural difficulties of feeding yourself along with three other smaller mouths, the children also had to hide themselves in the jungle from predators that lurked therein, such as snakes and jaguars and even other armed militia groups that were active in the area. They even reportedly hid themselves in the tree trunks and tree trunks for protection throughout the ordeal. In the end, it was incredible that they were found alive, that they were pulled out of the jungle, and it became apparently a national news story in Colombia, so much so that the president of Colombia even reportedly visited the children in the hospital in the aftermath. And we can understand why. Because stories like that typically don't have a happy ending. Now, in the case of Naomi, turning now to our text, there may have been no dramatic search and rescue efforts in Moab to bring her back to Bethlehem. No harrowing descriptions or harrowing descriptions of her 10-year sojourn in the land of Moab, but it's still an incredible thing that she eventually emerges out of the land of Moab alive after a 10-year sojourn in a place that wasn't her home. It's so incredible, in fact, that when she arrives in Bethlehem after 10 years by the end of our passage, it becomes maybe not a national story, but at least a local story. Because word spreads throughout the streets of Bethlehem that Naomi is back. But why is it that her return, a return that occupies the content of our passage this morning, why is it that return is so incredible? Well, for one thing, as we discussed last time we were in the book of Ruth, it was incredible because her family had been judged by God in Moab. 
Remember, the death of Elimelech, her husband, along with the death of her two sons, Malhon and Shilion, are best explained, we covered last time, as a consequence, a sad consequence of God's judgment upon the family for uprooting themselves from the land of promise and settling in the land of Moab when the going got tough. The same thing we mentioned last time could have been said for Orpah and Ruth's infertility in the land of promise. And so it's amazing then that in the wake of judgments, Naomi is first of all still alive and able to return to Bethlehem. And added to that, it's amazing that, she, that, that her bitterness, as apparent as it is, hasn't been so absolute that she would turn her back completely on the Lord. She may be bitter, but in her bitterness, she's still willing to come back to Bethlehem. But more incredible than any of that stuff is the fact that God, when our passage opens, has returned to his wayward people in Israel <coughs> and has provided bread once again to Bethlehem, the house of bread. You see, this story, as our text unfolds, is the story of an incredible return. But it's not incredible because Naomi picks herself off the floor and climbs out of the pit of despair. Rather, it's incredible because the grace of God has preserved her over a decade of sin. The grace of God has returned to the people of Israel in their prolonged sin. And all Naomi does in this passage is simply respond to grace. You see, it's not Naomi's heroics on display or Israel's goodness. It's the relentless grace of God towards his people, which always makes the first move, grips the hearts of hardened sinners, and carries the people of God forward when they are unable to move forward on their own. Understand that throughout this passage, we get our first glimpse at a bitter and suffering widow. And even though in much of her suffering, she only has herself, if not her family, to blame, we see the grace of God pursue her. And friends, that's the lesson this passage ministers to us with as well. You see, when we find ourselves, maybe like Naomi, running on empty, when we find that sin, whether that be the sin of other people, or our own sin, or most often a mixture of the two has such a dominant effect on our lives. Understand that the Lord still preserves and fills us in our emptiness, just as he does in this passage for Naomi. So our big idea as we plunge into the passage before us is this. The Lord preserves and fills us in our emptiness. The Lord preserves us and fills us in our emptiness. Now last time we were in Ruth, we heard of this threefold crisis that the passage unfolds with. But in our passage this morning, we're going to look at a threefold filling that occurs in the wake of that threefold crisis. And the threefold filling happens in three parts. First, the Lord fills Bethlehem. That's the first thing we're going to hear. Second, the Lord fills Ruth. Second thing we're going to hear. And third, through her, the Lord fills Naomi. Three fillings, if you will. The Lord fills Bethlehem, the Lord fills Ruth, and the Lord fills Naomi. So let's begin first with the Lord fills Bethlehem. <clears throat> now you may recall the, the irony back in verse 1. It's an irony that we just hinted at a moment ago. And that is that there was a famine in Bethlehem, a town whose name literally means the house of bread. The house of bread was devoid of bread. But now at last, 
After all the death and judgment and famine that we read about in the first five, cha- first five verses in Ruth, we have at last the first explicit mention of good news in the book of Ruth, because at last bread has returned to the house of bread. Now, we have no information that might explain why God saw fit at this particular point to lift the famine back in the land of promise, but it's certainly the case that this was the Lord's doing. After all, look at what Naomi hears here. Naomi hears in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Whatever the natural causes may have been involved in the crops flourishing once again, those matters are set aside and the Lord's care for his people, his wayward people, is what we find foregrounded in these opening verses. Uh, Again, this is the first explicit note of grace that we come across in the book of Ruth. But the second can be heard right alongside that. Because notice that while in the fields of Moab, Naomi hears of God's grace in Bethlehem. Don't overlook that. This is, as one commentator notes, itself a grace. Namely, that in the midst of her grief and pain, Naomi was actually able to hear good news. After all, I think we know how often in our suffering we can be cynics, quick to read any kind of good news or silver lining in the most pessimistic kind of lenses. That's not Naomi here. Naomi hears good news, and then what happens? Well, then she responds to it. We hear that she arises almost immediately and sets out, together with her two Moabite daughters-in-law, to go to Bethlehem. After 10 years of putting down their roots in Moab, she's willing to uproot herself in an instant to get back to Bethlehem, and it's not simply because food is found there once again. It's primarily because the Lord has visited his people in grace once again. Now, we'll see in a moment that Naomi's faith at this point is half-hearted at best. You know, for all the grace that she experiences and that Israel experiences, we're gonna find that she's still bitter. She's still bitter and weary, and that surfaces especially when she re-enters life in Bethlehem. But at least here, the Lord has given her ears to hear the report of grace in Bethlehem, and even in her bitterness, she responds to it by turning with her daughters-in-law and taking a treacherous 75-mile journey, as the case would have been for three widows, back to Bethlehem. Now, one of the words that shows up at this point, as it does throughout our passage, is this word translated return or turn back. You might see that show up in the English at several points. That Hebrew word actually shows up a total of 10 times in these verses and only three times in the rest of the book of Ruth, which tells us that it's pretty important in this passage. We could rightly say that all of these verses that we're studying today are all about things returning. But again, at this point, her return is simply a response to God's return. It's a response to God's grace. She might be the primary character in the book of Ruth, the one whose actions are spotlighted here even in our passage, but understand that all of her actions follow as a response of the God who takes the lead. Now, I think at one level, all of us know what it's like to respond to really good news when we hear it. I can remember several years ago, back before Black Friday shopping was mostly online, 
um, that people would seek out Black Friday ads with all the steep discounts that they offered in the newspapers. On Thanksgiving morning, I remember people would go out and they'd get a newspaper and they'd see all the Black Friday ads, and that was still plenty of time. Less than 24 hours before those Black Friday ads would go into effect, it was still plenty of time for people to come out in droves at 3 a.m. the next morning and act insane for new TVs and panini makers. You see, we all know what it's like to respond in an instant for a good deal. But the question here is, are we willing, would we be willing, like Naomi, to drop everything, even in our bitterness or suffering, to taste and see that the Lord is good? You see, what I find so interesting about these opening verses, as transitory as they are to the overall narrative, is that Naomi responds here to divine grace even when her heart's not entirely in it. You can imagine and even understand that with the same information Naomi had, how someone might rather than how she responds say, well, you know what? God's grace may have returned to Bethlehem and returned to his people, and that's great for them, but he hasn't been gracious to me, and so I'm going to stay right here in Moab. Folded arms and refusal to go back. We might understand if someone like Naomi dug in her heels in Moab, folded her arms, and refused to move, but that's not what she does, does it? You see, even though she's subjectively bitter, and she's bitter towards God, she still recognizes, it seems, the objective realities about God and God's grace. Her heart might not, at this point, be entirely warm towards God, but that doesn't prevent her from responding to the objective reality that God is in Bethlehem again, and that must be the place to be. And I think that one of the initial challenges this passage presses upon us is whether or not we are willing to respond to God's grace likewise, even when our hearts might not entirely be in it. Now, of course, that's not to say that discipleship is just a matter of going through the motions, not at all. But sometimes the challenge in the Christian life is just getting out of bed, so to speak, when all we want to do is sleep. Sometimes the biggest challenge is just to come to church when we're not feeling it, because we trust, like Naomi seemed to, that this is where God specially meets with his people. Sometimes the Christian life is just about opening up our Bibles and reading even when we might even when all we might want to do is mindlessly scroll through our phones because we know objectively speaking that this is where God speaks to his people and matures his people for their good. Again, we all know how to respond in an instant when we're feeling it, when there's a good deal out there. We know how to respond when our hearts are in it. But the challenge of the Christian life is to trust the reality of God's goodness and his grace, even when our experience of suffering and bitterness doesn't feel like acknowledging those realities. Now, in what follows, we're going to see Naomi's half-hearted faith on display. But we'll also see that even in her half-hearted faith, she responds in obedience to God, we see that God then begins to meet her with even more grace in her daughter-in-law, Ruth. We're going to see grace increase even more as we move forward. But for now, this leads us to our next point. Now, God has filled Bethlehem, and Naomi responds to that. But next, we're going to see how God fills somebody else, how God specifically fills Ruth. This is our second point. Second, the Lord fills Ruth. 
So, the widow Naomi, she sets out from Moab with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. But at this point on their trek, Naomi decides that she has to have a heart-to-heart with her daughters-in-law. And in the first of many speeches in Ruth, Naomi turns to her daughters-in-law and maybe somewhat surprisingly pushes them back to Moab. In fact, a total of three times in this passage, she reasons with them that life would be better off for them, not in Bethlehem, but in in Moab. The first time, in verses 8 through 9, she sends her daughter's law off with a prayer. It's a kind way of sending somebody off. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord grant you rest in the house of your husband. No, it's not a bad prayer, and, and in it she recognizes a couple important things. First of all, uh, she recognizes that, um, that the Lord is the one who is able to bless a people, whether in Israel or outside the land of promise. In other words, during her time in Moab, 10 years in Moab, she hasn't turned into a pluralist or a worshiper of other gods. She doesn't ask here that Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, would bless her daughters-in-law. She asks that the Lord would bless them and recognizes in that that the Lord can't be limited. He's able even to work outside of Israel, though she's going to also contradict herself on that point in just a moment. She also, in her prayer, she asks that the Lord would deal kindly with her daughters-in-law as they have dealt kindly with her and with her sons. Now, this word in verse 8, translated kindly, this is a real rich word in the Hebrew. It's a, it's a word that English translations don't convey all that great. It's a word that gets at the idea of covenant love or a committed kind of love. One commentator I read calls this love without an exit strategy. It's the kind of love that God has towards his people. And Naomi asks that the Lord would do that kind of love to these women who are outside the covenant in a land that's outside the covenant. Again, Naomi's whole prayer initially here, it's a good, other-centered prayer with some measure of faith. But how do her daughters-in-law respond to this prayer? Well, they weep, and then they refuse to turn back. So Naomi, she reasons with them a second time, and this time the gloves come off. And she essentially reasons that to throw their lot in with her would be to throw in the towel on their futures. Naomi reasons that she's too old to have sons of her own for them to eventually marry. Now, that might sound like a very weird comment uh, to our modern Western ears, but understand that there was a provision in Israel's law for a widow to remarry her dead husband's brother in order to promulgate offspring in his name. It was meant to honor the dead and also for the protection of a widow. And this law will come into effect a little bit later in Ruth, and we'll study it when we get there. Nevertheless, Naomi's argument this second time is essentially that they have no security and no future if they return to Bethlehem. She can't provide for them. So again, it's best that they go back to Moab. Now, to this point where Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, she leaves. Her name, we talked about the meaning of names last time we were in the book of Ruth, and her name means something like back of the neck. If you're looking for a name for your daughter, I wouldn't recommend that one. Um, but she lives up to her name. She kisses her mother-in-law, Naomi, and then she turns back of neck and she departs. But what about Ruth? Well, Ruth's proving to be a little bit stubborn here, isn't she? Because she, in contrast to Orpah, she clings to Naomi. And it's at this point where Naomi's beautiful prayer in her first speech gets a little bit muddy. 
because she calls upon Ruth to follow Orpah's example, and then she specifically invokes the Moabite gods, as if to say, she's returned to her gods, Orpah, so Ruth, why don't you do the same and return to your gods in Moab? You might not want to take a class in evangelism from Naomi at this point, because it's not a good look for her. Now, it's probably true, though, that, that Naomi in this last speech, or this, this, second, this third speech, that this is a last-ditch effort, some half-hearted attempt to get Ruth to leave. And it's doubtful that she actually believes that there are multiple gods in Moab, or real gods. But thankfully, Ruth is having none of it, and now her gloves come off. And she gives in what follows a beautiful speech of conviction, of faith, and of commitment to Naomi, and ultimately, to the Lord. And it's a commitment that reflects a heart that has been filled at some point with the grace of God, just like Bethlehem had earlier been filled with bread once again. So what does Ruth say? Well, in verses 16 through 17, we hear her tie her present and her future to Naomi. Remember that earlier, Naomi commended Ruth and Orpah for their kindness and steadfast love that they showed to the family earlier in Moab. But now, now Ruth's speech plunges to the depths of that commitment because she commits herself to go to Bethlehem. And then in what Sinclair Ferguson calls the jewel in the crown of verses 16 through 17, she asserts her commitment, unwavering commitment to the people of God and to Yahweh himself, even in death. Again, she proclaims, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This is a stunning confession. For one thing, the chief aspect, keep this in mind, the chief aspect of Yahweh's dealing with Naomi's family in Moab had been judgment. The last 10 years, Ruth had seen one judgment after another as her father-in-law died, as her brother-in-law died, and then as her husband died. And Naomi grew increasingly bitter towards God in the wake of those deaths. Who knows what else Ruth learned about Yahweh and Moab, but whether it was his power or the stories of his past dealing with his people or something else, Ruth now commits herself with presumably little information about Yahweh to Yahweh and to his wayward people. But these words are also stunning for another reason, too. They're stunning because they also reflect earlier words in the Bible that were ascribed to God speaking to his people. <clears throat> you see, earlier in the Bible, when God showed covenant love towards his people and he entered into a covenant with them, one of the frequent promises that's made that the Lord makes to his people is, I will be your God and you will be my people. In Leviticus 26, 12, the Lord promises to Israel, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. And you know what God did in the Old Testament in order to underscore his absolute unwavering commitment to his covenant? Well, he took upon himself what theologians refer to as a self-maledictory oath, where he promised that should he not uphold his end of the bargain, he himself would be cursed in death. You can see that commitment unfold in the book of Genesis, specifically in Genesis 15. And what do we hear Ruth do in this passage? Well, she also takes upon herself a kind of self-maledictory oath by saying, May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. 
Just as the Lord unwaveringly committed himself to his people, even through death itself, this is what Ruth now promises to Naomi. She's not going to give up on Naomi in the same way that the Lord will not give up on his covenant people. And yet as remarkable as her commitment to Naomi is, I think even more remarkable is the greater covenant commitment, that greater covenant commitment that God makes to us. You see, in the same way that Ruth apparently gets nothing out of this relationship with Naomi, humanly speaking, there's nothing that Ruth gains here. Isn't it true of how God relates with us as well? When we think of the greater commitment that God makes with us in Christ, of which this is only a picture, that should astonish us. Notice again that the only thing Ruth gets out of this covenant, at least initially, is the bitter silence of Naomi. But isn't that what we often give to the Lord? Like Naomi does to Ruth, so often we give God our bitterness, we give him our complaints, our silent prayerlessness when he's given us so much, and then when he continues to give us grace upon grace, we, just like Naomi will do later in the passage, pretend he's not even there. Our thanklessness speaks volumes. And yet the Lord is so committed to us, even in death, that he gave himself in the person of Jesus Christ over to the shameful and cursed death of the cross so that we would never in life or in death be outside of the loving embrace of the God of the covenant, even when we wander for a time in a veritable Moab. So as we reflect on Ruth's confession here, there are at least two actions I think that this prompts us towards. On the one hand, it prompts us to put ourselves in Naomi's shoes for a moment and to bask in the commitment that God makes towards us. Even when we prove to be the most unlovable and bitter people, as we so often do, God has not and will not throw in the towel on us. Praise be to God for that. But on the other hand, this also prompts us, I think, to put ourselves in Ruth's shoes and ask whether the grace of God has gripped us like it apparently had gripped Ruth. Understand that the way of faith, it doesn't always look reasonable. Now what's reasonable is what Orpah earlier did. She weighed Naomi's arguments, those arguments seemed rational to her, and so she went back to Moab. But what, or more properly who, wasn't part of the equation at all for Orpah? The Lord. The Lord wasn't part of that equation at all. Orpah reasons by sight, but Naomi, or Ruth here, we see Ruth reason by faith. All she knows about God is what she's heard in Moab, and now what she hears is happening in Bethlehem. But those simple notes of God's grace, they play like a symphony in her soul, and she responds with an all-surrendering faith. I think Ruth's faith is perhaps a challenge to all of us, but a challenge to those of us who have perhaps been in the church for some time and have maybe at some point, maybe even right now, have grown cold in your love for God. And we can imagine the shock that Naomi may have felt to hear this over-the-top commitment from the mouth of Ruth. And as we see in verse 18, she has no words to say when all is said and done. For some of us, I think Ruth's commitment should jolt us to maybe wake up in our discipleship too. But for those of you who aren't looking to faith in Christ right now, a question this passage prompts is perhaps what else are you waiting for? 
You know, your questions about God are, of course, important. We value them. We'd love to talk to you about them. The Bible, we believe, gives robust answers to our robust questions. But at some point, the Bible calls you to respond to what you know to be true. And what's true is that the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ has been poured out for sinners. And it calls us to respond like Ruth by surrendering all that's within us to Jesus Christ. What we see in the text, in part, is how the grace of God fills Ruth. And in Christ, brothers and sisters, the grace of God can fill you and play like a symphony in your soul as well, too. But before we close our passage and transition to tasting the grace of God in the Lord's Supper, we have one more very brief point to cover. And that is, Ruth has been filled, Bethlehem had earlier been filled, but now we're going to see that through Ruth, the Lord begins to fill Naomi. So Naomi and Ruth, they, they finally make it, as we come to verse 19 of our passage, they finally make it to Bethlehem. Now the journey itself was only about three days to cover about 75 miles or so, but it, it's as if Naomi was living on the other side of the world those previous 10 years, and so when she re-enters life in Bethlehem, the whole city is stirred. Prodigal woman, from a prodigal family has finally shown up at the city gates and word spreads fast. And as the residents of Bethlehem look at Naomi, I can hardly believe it's her. You know, 10 years can age a person and 10 years of suffering and grief and death even more so. And that might be baked into their shock at seeing Naomi. They're surprised she's back and maybe even surprised at how much she's aged. Nevertheless, as Naomi hears all of the murmuring and as people greet her by name, she hears other people say her name, Naomi, Naomi, a name that means pleasant. And the mismatch is too much for her to bear. And so she responds, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, a name that means bitter. Because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty and has brought calamity? Upon me. Now, if we were to pick apart Naomi's speech here for a moment, we notice a few issues in it. For one thing, she doesn't seem to acknowledge in this speech the sin of her own family in everything that led to her present bitterness. And then she also doesn't acknowledge God's mercy in preserving her life through all that pain and suffering. According to one commentator, quote, Naomi does indeed ascribe sovereignty to God, but this is a sovereignty without grace, in an omnipotent power without compassion, and a judicial will without mercy. That's the kind of God she sees in the God of the covenant at this point. And yet, it's still not a light thing that she's still able to recognize God. In fact, she calls God in this passage by two different names. She calls him Shaddai, a name that typically connotes God's power, and also Yahweh, the covenant name of God. It's not insignificant, friends, that even in her suffering, she still recognizes that the Almighty God is the God of the covenant. Again, Naomi's faith at this point is a mixed faith. It's an imperfect faith. It's a faith that's wrapped up in bitterness. It's incomplete theologically. But I think we can understand what that's like sometimes too, can't we? But the important point, lest we miss it, is to notice who's alongside her this entire time. 
It's Ruth. It's interesting that Ruth, in these final verses, completely recedes into the background. And, and Naomi doesn't mention her once. The crowds in Bethlehem, they appear to ignore her. And the only reminder for us as the reader that she's even still in the picture comes in the narrative summary in verse 22. Uh, maybe you've been that awkward third wheel before in a foreign context where no one, not even the person you came with, seems to acknowledge your existence. Well, that's Ruth's position as the passage closes. And yet the grace of this passage is that through Ruth, the Lord is beginning to fill Naomi once again. Through this Moabite, this woman who Ruth doesn't, or Naomi doesn't even care to acknowledge or introduce to her Bethlehemite friends, the grace of God is at work in Naomi's bitterness. There's an important lesson here, I think, that we can take away in our bitterness as well, too. You see, when we find ourselves cold towards God and bitter because of whatever lot we've received in life, God's grace towards us persists. Even though we might not feel God's warm embrace, God has so anchored us to himself through Jesus Christ that, friends, he will not let you go. Though we are faithless and so readily distort what's real and true in our minds, that doesn't change what reality is and that doesn't change God's faithfulness towards us either. And so when we find ourselves angry or bitter or confused with God and what he's up to, we have one of two choices. On the one hand, we can pull away and drift further into our autonomy and bitterness, or on the other hand, we can press in to the covenant community, press in to the ordinary means of grace, word, and sacrament, and trust that even when we're not feeling it, that God can and does meet his people in those places. This is what Naomi does. Clearly, the tension isn't resolved when the passage closes. There's still much more that's left to be said that hasn't been said. But the important point here is God is resolved to her. We see that in Ruth's commitment. Brothers and sisters, we see that in God's greater commitment to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. On that note, we have the opportunity in just a moment, an opportunity that we have every Lord's Day, to come to this table and to be nourished in the grace of the gospel. And while this is a meal, we'll note in just a moment, is only for <clears throat> the people of God, it's certainly not a meal that's only reserved for those who are having smooth sailing in their discipleship. Because this is a meal for those like Naomi, who might be bitter and confused, but who are nevertheless convinced that it's better to press into grace than stay or return to Moab. Understand that the Lord graciously meets us when we can't pull ourselves together to meet him. And in word and sacrament, friends, that's what the Lord is faithful to do for us, for you and for me. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. That though our love is often cold, we know that in Jesus Christ you hold us fast. That when we suffer and we don't feel your presence or your nearness, that your word reminds us that we can trust these things are true regardless. I pray, Lord, that you would help us in whatever emptiness we're experiencing or whatever emptiness our friends are experiencing. I pray that you would show grace, that you would remind us of grace, and that you would continue to fill us with the grace of the gospel now and every day we live, move, and have our being. We pray this in Christ's name.